Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. Hallelujah. Go with me to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm, somebody loves that one. Psalm 139. Hallelujah. Psalm 139. I want to start with verse 13. Can't talk about identity and purpose and destiny without looking at these few verses here. And I hope that we can, um, I, I might get up in your business a little bit tonight. Is that okay? Can I, can I get in your business? Can we, can we dabble a little bit like I haven't been? I'm asking permission tonight. Sometimes I just force my way in tonight. I'm being a little more generous and giving you a heads up, but man, I tell you what, I let the Lord dabble all he wants. Amen. He knows better than I do. He can mess with and dabble and reassign, readdress, renew anything he wants. Come in, move the furniture around where you want it. Hallelujah. I give him free reign. I give him full reign. I give him, he's Lord. He's Lord. That means he's owner. That means he's manager. That means he knows better than I do. So you tell me where you want this. You tell me you tell me what you this should look like and how we should use this, and you get glory from it. Psalm 139, verse 13. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you. Did we do that tonight? Did we praise him? I will praise you because. I have been remarkably and wondrously made, fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless, and all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them was planned. I love the uniqueness that God created you and I with. I love the authenticity. I love the masterous design. I love the the intricacy and the detail by which this passage shows how you and I were not just created, but thought of. You might remember in the very first week of talking on this identity subject that we, we said that before something is created, it is first a vision in the mind of the creator. Okay? The manufacturer saw the thing before he saw the thing had vision for the thing in an unseen realm. It was in their imagination. It was in their their thought process. It was already in their mind before it was in their hand. And you and I were in the mind of God before we ever took flesh, before we were ever formed. It says, before my first step, before my first breath, before my first notion of existence, everything was planned out. God doesn't just plan the beginning of something. He starts at the end of it and then works his way backward. 
God says, this is what it will be. This is what it will do. This is how it will perform. Then he gets all the way to the beginning and says, all right, now go and do. Go and be. Go and, go and perform what I have already destined you to be. That's the design of the master. That's the design of the creator. That's the design of the manufacturer, that he doesn't bring something into existence without a destiny and purpose already assigned to it. He doesn't bring something into a seen realm and then have to say, what will this do? Or what should this be? Or I wonder what this will look like. Or I wonder how this will operate. Or I wonder what this will accomplish. I wonder what it will look like if this thing did its design purpose and everything I put into it. I wonder what that would. There's no wondering with God. See, you and I are not in, on, a, on a journey of becoming. We're on a journey of discovery. Discovery of who you and I have always been destined to be. When you come into the kingdom, you are reborn. Old things are passed away and all things become new. There's a transformation process that takes place. And in that moment, you become everything that God destined you to be by his providence, by his sovereignty, by his design, by the manufacturer's purpose in his mind. Now you and I get to discover who he designed us to be. It's a discovery. I'm not trying to impress him. I'm not trying to perform for him. I'm not trying to conjure up so I can be good enough to live up to what I am discovering. And you know, you know what? If we could just break it down, one of the greatest assignments of the Holy Spirit is to introduce you to you. The Holy Spirit, part of the work of the Holy Spirit is now to show you who you are. He helps you look in the mirror, and when you look back, you see everything that God has placed in there. It's called potential. Potential is hidden. Potential is untapped. Potential is yet to be seen. It's not potential if we've already reached it. Potential is reaching for and striving for for what is already there. There's a completeness about you. You need to understand this today. There is a completeness and a wholeness about you. When you came into the kingdom, God restored you back to that original design and that original plan. And where religion comes in is when we try to become something we already are. Where religion shows up is where we end up in this performance mode of trying to do and to, if I can use the word, prove. You know how much time people spend trying to prove stuff to people? Trying to prove to them who they really are. Trying to prove to them they're a good mom, a good dad. Trying to prove. We post things to prove things. (laughs) It's two things people strive for in life today, prove and improve. We're trying to prove we're already something that, that uh, we haven't yet become, and then we're always unsecretly trying to improve that thing. Behind the scenes, we're improving, and in front of people, we're trying to prove. It's a dangerous mess that we've got ourselves in when we don't know who we are in Christ, when we don't know our true identity, when we don't understand the passages of this verse, the, the uniqueness and, and, and the, the thoughtfulness that went into your creation. And, and here we are trying to, this is what I know, comparison is not of God. 
This passage tells me this, that the, the moment you try to compare yourself or become like someone else, you compromise who you really are. And many people are striving so hard to be something that they were never designed to be that they never become the thing that they were designed to be. I can, I can, get, I can get so far off trying to be something for someone else that I never become the thing God wanted me to be in the first place. Because I can't be what others want me to be and who God wants me to be or has called me to be at the same time. One is going to give. One's going to be compromised for the other. So, man, this, this trap of comparison and this trap of performing and this trap of always trying to prove and be and do, it, it's, it's a sick, twisted lie of the devil that he showed us that we've already seen in Genesis chapter 3 that when Eve was tempted with fruit, she wasn't really tempted with fruit. She was tempted with identity. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you'll be more like the thing God has already created you to be. If she would have just gone back two chapters, right? <laughs> she didn't have Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. God created that. She didn't have that, but she had the word of God. And all she needed to do was go back to the word of God and say, wait a minute, I, the last time I checked, my assignment on this planet was to rule and reign on the earth. And I could only do that if I followed his model and his template. And he created me in his image and in his likeness. Get out of here, Satan. Get out of here, snake. You, you can't tempt me with something I already am. See, when you don't know your identity, you get tempted by things that shouldn't be tempting us. We find things attractive that, should be, we, that we should find repulsive. No, religion gets us caught in all kinds of messes. Religion gets us caught, and it, it all goes back to identity. It all, we said this in the very first week. I think I've repeated it every week. If we don't solve the identity crisis, then everything else will become a crisis. It's important to understand who you are and the worth and the value and the intricacy and the detail and the authenticity and the why are we spending so much time comparing ourselves to something When God wanted us to be unique, to be different. If you try to be something you aren't, don't be surprised when you're not satisfied with the result. If you try to be something you aren't, don't be surprised when you're not satisfied with the results. I think anybody that falls into the trap of comparison and performance, that at the, at the core of themselves, they're dissatisfied with who they really are anyways. That really the only satisfaction in who you are and feeling fulfillment. I mean, if, 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 we, if we ask 100 people on this planet, how, how fulfilled do you feel at life? Where do you think we would rank? Probably not very high. On a scale of 1 to 10, how fulfilled do you feel? I think most people will feel they fall short in some degree. But it's time for the church of God. It's time for the church of the living God to rise and say, I'm fulfilling that for which I was created, that for which I was born, that for which I was manufactured, that for which I was destined to be. We need a fulfilling church. We need a church that feels fulfilled in its mission, fulfilled in its purpose, fulfilled as a, as a wife, fulfilled as a husband, fulfilled as a student, fulfilled as a business owner. It's almost like every assignment that we pick up along the way, the devil knows how to make us feel unfulfilled in the calling to which we were assigned because we don't know who we are. 
because we're judging ourselves by the wrong measurements. We're judging ourselves by the wrong things. We're, we're, we're taking the wrong posts to determine, am I, re, am I really being successful? It's a dangerous trap. Look at this in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. You know, even Jesus had to deal with this. He did. We already saw, you know, just as uh, the snake tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, again, not with fruit, but with identity. If you eat of the fruit, you'll be more like God, more like something they were already. We saw that that the, 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 the devil, Satan, tempted Jesus in the wilderness, right? 40 days and 40 nights, he went without food. And we saw, we walked through this, we journeyed through it several weeks ago, that he tempted him with identity every time. If you are the son of God, if you are, if you are, if you are, what's he doing? He's challenging his identity because he recognizes if I can get your identity, then I can get your authority because your authority lies in your identity. The moment you forget who you are, then you lose your assignment to which God called you. But the moment I remember who I am is the moment I step back in to the calling and the purpose for which he called me. It's the key to, it's the key to identity. So even Jesus had to battle these things just as you and I do. But look at this in John chapter 7. And uh, let's just start here with verse 1, see how far we get. In verse 1, it says, after, uh, after these things, I guess I, I need this in, um, what did I give you guys, the CSB? Back there? Well, look at this in the CSB. Amen. We'll find it here in a minute. Glory to God. John chapter 7, verse 1. We want, well, I don't want to pull it up. They, they got it up there on that big screen behind me. I just, I just read along with y'all, right? Hallelujah. John chapter 7, verse 1, C-S-B. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee. I didn't memorize it, guys. I got to memorize in New King James, so... After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near. So his brothers said to him, this is his brother, his natural brothers, his earthly brothers, his natural brothers said, leave here and go to where? Judea, the very place he's avoiding, right? Verse 1 says that he's not going to Judea because the Jews are trying to kill him. And in verse 2, his brothers are trying to tell him to go to that very place, go to Judea, so that your disciples can see your works that you are doing. 
for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What is happening in this moment, if you read John chapter 6, or if you know what happened in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, Jesus just got done ticking off a bunch of people. He just got done making a lot of people mad. He just got done losing. Um, he did the opposite of what people are trying to do today. He lost followers. Jesus could hold a conference on how to lose followers. Apparently, Jesus wasn't so interested as we are today in followers of our Instagram profiles and our Facebook pages and all that stuff. He wasn't trying to gain followers. He was trying to keep purpose. Amen. See, if you try to keep people, then you'll lose purpose. But he wasn't interested in keeping people. He was interested in staying with the purpose. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 66, 666, <laughs> says, and many people from that day no longer follow Jesus at that time. That's just the previous chapter. He started talking about cannibalism, and if you drink of my blood and eat of my body, and they're like, whoa, wait a minute. Where's the guy that was multiplying bread, not talking about us eating him? That's not the guy we were following. Where's the water-walking guy, raising dead guy? Uh, you know, where, where, where's the one with all the amazing things to say? This guy's talking about crazy stuff. We're, no, we're out. He looked at his own disciples, and Peter, you know, he looked at him and said, you going to go too? And Peter responded and said, man, you're just, you are life. Where, where else are we going to go? Now, Peter might have been on the inside saying, man, we come this far. They already think we're one of you. They already think we're one of those crazy folks, those Jesus followers. We might as well just see this thing to the end. I don't know how invested he was, but he said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. But many of his disciples followed him. And so in the very next chapter, it says, you know what? I'm not going to Judea. Those people are trying to kill me. Those people want my life. They're hunting for my life. So his brothers come up with a little strategic plan, almost like a, like a PR team, if you will, for Jesus' ministry. Say, how can we get this thing back on track? That, that, last, that last stop that we had, like as if he's on some kind of campaign trail, you know, that last stop, I think we, you know, you said a bunch of weird things, and we lost some people there, and, and so we got to get your rapport back up. You know, we, 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 we took a pretty good hit back there. Uh, you know, it, it was a blue state, now it's a red state, and, and so, you know, we got to make sure we come back strong, right? So here's what we're going to do. You're going to go to Judea. You're going to do some of those signs and wonders. Just, just, just perform. Just do some of those gimmicks and tricks that you did before. I mean, it seemed to gain followers pretty quick. We had 15,000 people on the side of a mountain eating fish and bread to their full. Took home a bunch of leftovers. We turned out pretty good as well. Right? So they're coming up with this, this idea, this scheme to get him off of his purpose to they're not doing it intentionally they think his purpose is to give to gather as many people as possible that's not Jesus's purpose Jesus's purpose is to fulfill a mission to fulfill a mission 
And so they're getting him caught up on this, this road of, of trying to be something or become something. Now, we know this about Jesus. Jesus knew his identity. Jesus knew who he was. Many times he made statements like, I, I don't come on my own initiative. I don't speak on my own accord. The things that I say I'm told by the Father, that I'm only here to reveal to you. Who the, He was so close in his identity and so close in his uh, 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 relation to the Father that he said this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, I mean, him and I, we're, we are in so lockstep with one another. If you've seen me, the works that I do, I do because my father is still working. The things that I'm doing is because I've been sent by the father. So everything that Jesus did, everywhere he went, everything he said was dictated by identity. It started with the, the, the foundation and the basis of who he is. And so Jesus never did anything out of step with his purpose and his identity. Jesus never performed to try to prove something. Jesus never healed somebody so that everybody could see how awesome he was. I'll go a step further. Jesus didn't heal people to try to, 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 to even to make them well. Jesus was revealing the Father in everything he did. He said, I want to perform this and do this so that you can get to know the Father more. I wonder if what would happen if that was our driving, driving force behind what we want God to do. Do we want God to bless us so we can have a nicer car and a nicer house? Or do we want people to see the Father revealed, glorified? If he could do it for me, he sure can do it for you. You know, I think we would see a lot of the miracles and the blessings and the signs that we're looking for in our lives if we had a different motive behind it. Of course, Jesus wanted them well. Of course, Jesus wanted them healed. Of course, Jesus wanted a better life for them. But ultimately, what he wanted was that the Father was revealed in everything he did. He knew his mission. He knew his purpose. There's no way he's going to get off on a, on a tangent in a track of trying to perform to prove something. There were many times that people would come to him and say, do a sign and do a wonder. In fact, I found it in, I believe it's Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 16, four chapters apart. Pharisees and Sadducees came to him saying, perform a sign and a wonder for us. And both times he told him the same thing in both chapters, in the same book, in Matthew. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. He had the same response to both of them. It's the very opposite of what we're seeing in our world today. We perform for people that aren't even asking. Jesus wouldn't perform for people that were asking. Look at the next verse in verse 5. This is really interesting. It's in parentheses in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. You know who we find, 
if, if we could just be honest with ourselves, you know who we find ourselves performing for the most? People that don't even really care. If we could be absolutely honest, we are working to prove stuff to people who aren't asking, who don't care, who they're, they're not scrolling your Facebook page waiting for the next post that you give them, the restaurant you ate at last night. They're not looking to see how good of a mom you are. They're not, they're not pulling up Facebook so they can see if you really are that great with your kids, like you, like you say that you are, like they, they think that you are. We find ourselves trying to prove the most to the people who care the least. We find ourselves trying to impress people that aren't asking how much money you make. They could care less what kind of car you drive. You know, in, in, in anything in life, we can get caught up in this performance thing. As a mom. As a dad, I can get caught up in it as a pastor. And you know what I realize is every time we compare ourselves to something that we're not, we compromise what we really are. Every time I try to be someone else, then what is compromised is the uniqueness in me. And when I try to perform to prove something to people, then I'm not revealing the Father anymore. I'm more interested in revealing me. See, if Jesus was interested in revealing Jesus, then he would have said, you're right. Let's hit the next town. Took a hit back there. Lost some followers. But hey, I'm sure I can conjure up some more miracles. I'm sure I can get some more signs going. I'm anointed, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Or He's anointed me. And all these assignments and all, that, I, I mean, I can do it. I, we, we can put it on. And, 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 and Jesus would have compromised his mission. See, sometimes the temptations don't come from outside. They come from inside. These are his own brothers saying, hey, let's hit the next town and, let, and do some of those tricks and things that you were doing before. You'd be surprised. But yet in parentheses it says, but not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in who he really was. You know, I'd imagine it'd be tough to be the brother of Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, what could you ever do that it doesn't matter how many A's you get, he's turning water into wine. I mean, right? It doesn't matter how smart you look, he's sitting in the synagogue teaching Pharisees and Sadducees to rulers at 12 years old. He's about the father's business, right? And naturally, they had a lockup. How many times do we see in the word that it was the people closest to Jesus that had the hardest time receiving from Jesus? It was the people closest to him and most familiar with him that struggled the most with his identity. And we deal with this too. 
It's the people closest to us that have the hardest time reconciling what God is doing through our life. Because how could God use someone like that? How could God use I know what they did. I know who they used to be. Or maybe we have uh, this even uh, alter ego issue, this, this, this other person issue where we are different behind closed doors than we are in front, the public and private issue. See, this is why behind closed doors, we need to be striving and searching for a true relationship. Your relationship with God is not proven in public. It's proven in private. It's displayed in public, but it's proven in private. And we have sacrificed our private devotion at the altar of public affirmation. It's more important that we look the part than actually play the part. It's more important that people see it up here. There's always this reconciling of who I am when no one's looking versus what everybody else sees. And the more I mess it up in private, the more I have to put it on in public. A lot of our public life is to over for our private. But see, Jesus had such a private devotion. How many times do we read in the Word that he was all night praying on the side of a mountain? How many times do we see the, the, the times he would separate, the times that he would get away? I mean, look, just in this passage alone, in verse 1, he's literally avoiding Judea. And it becomes the very place that his brothers are tempting him to go to. How can he say no in public? Because he learned to say no in private. Jesus learned to internally do some things that externally he was able to respond correctly. Even though it seemed like that was the right thing to do. Even though it seemed like that was the right place to go. Even though it seemed like Jesus knew. And Jesus wasn't avoiding Judea out of fear. I don't want them to kill me. He knew it wasn't yet his time. He knew it wasn't yet his time. Jesus wasn't avoiding out of fear. He was avoiding out of purpose. Intentionally. One one passage actually, one translation actually reads, he purposely avoided Judea. Because he knew that there were people that sought to kill him. See, you have to purpose things in private. You cannot purpose things in public. You cannot live the purpose of God off of your public decisions and your public life. You have to make those decisions internally. You've got to make those decisions between you and God. Not motivated by what people will think. Not motivated by, because this is what I know. Many times when it seems right on the outside to stay is when we should go. And many times when on the outside it seems like it's time to go, that's when we should stay. And the only way you'll be able to differentiate and discern between the two is if you have the private devotion. But if your life is led out of proving publicly, I, I tell you what, when you learn to have a private devotion, you're okay with looking stupid in public. You're okay with making a decision that nobody else is making. Nobody else is is recommending. Nobody else is, is, is making that decision for you. 
But the only way you'll stand against external opposition is if you have the private internal position first. Where does, I, where does our identity come from? We've already looked at this for several weeks. Our identity comes from the Father, and our identity determines our performance. Our performance doesn't determine our identity. See, his brothers thought that his performance determined his identity. Therefore, if a bunch of people left you, then your identity is up for trial and debate. But he knew, regardless of what people see and regardless of what people think, I know who I am. Could we be so confident? Could we be a church, a people, so confident on the inside that our internal resolve would stand against even the greatest external pressures? I may not be there yet, but that's who I want to be. Because I know in the days that are ahead, for the church, the external pressures are coming. The external pressures to be. The external pressures to say the right thing and play the right part and do the right thing. They're coming. I know they're coming. And not just from people outside the church. A lot of those challenges and a lot of those questions and a lot of those, I can't believe you would say that and do that, it'll come from right on the pews that you're preaching to. I know it'll come. It'll come in your workplace. It'll come in your home. It'll come in your family. It's time for the church to rise up with an internal resolve, an internal identity that is so resolved, so intent, so confident and assured in who they are that there is nothing externally that will shape you or form you or make you come off of what you believe to be true. Believers got to rise up. Believers got to rise up. And it's not a belief until you're willing to act on it and do it. It's not a belief and a conviction until you're willing to step out all by yourself and leave everybody else behind. It is not a belief until there's action behind it. And Jesus didn't just live a life of proclaiming I'm the Messiah and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. But then when uh, uh, oppression or, or struggle showed up or, or people started abandoning and leaving, that he's like, wait, 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 what did I say, guys? I mean, if you go back to John chapter 6, he actually uses these words. Does this offend you? Does this saying offend you? Am I offending you right now? Jesus had no problem offending people with his mission. And I, I know that the mission and purpose of the church in these last days, is going to be more offensive than ever. When you start breaking down the gates of hell, when you start advancing the kingdom of God, and we stop hiding out in our, in our stained glass windows and our church pews, when we start actually going and advancing the kingdom and revival comes to Valdosta, I mean, along with the revival comes the opposition. You start disrupting things. I don't like you're doing service every night. People all of a sudden start, you know, uh, 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 uh talking about your music and talking about your parking lot and start talking about, you know, you're taking away from this and you're taking away from that. Silly stuff. Because offended people find fickle little things to empower why they feel the way they feel. It'll be the dumbest things that they'll call out for Anchor Faith Church. It'll be the stupidest, like, that bothers you? That, that 
really? That bothers you? It's because they don't want to see a move of God. You know, I, I think that there are more Christians that on this earth, if we just would be honest about it, that are looking for a move of man, not a move of God. They're looking to be impressed. They're looking for entertainment. They're looking to the next performance. But man, when people get hungry for the move of God, it's amazing all of a sudden the, the, the things that become so small and the things that all of a sudden don't matter anymore. I was watching a video yesterday of a, of a man, and he was uh, in China, you know, leading a, a Bible study in China at an underground church, you know, because they can't do church like we do church. We take this stuff for granted. We can put a sign out by the road that says, this is where we are. They can't do that. And he was talking to this group of people, and he, 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 they, they, some of the, I think he said there were 22 people there, and 18 of them had Bibles, 18 of them. And he went to a certain passage, I think he said, you know, 1 Peter chapter 2. He told me to 1 Peter, so the ones that had Bibles turned. And, and when he went there, he, he started to read, and then he looked up, and he saw a lady take her Bible and hand it to someone next to her that didn't have a Bible. And so he stopped, and he said, how come you gave her, why did, why? she said, I already memorized that one. The chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, I already memorized that one. He's like, you memorize it? He's like, yeah, we had to memorize it. She said, when I went to prison for having a Bible, and when I went to prison, we would get Bibles. Well, wouldn't they confiscate it? Well, yeah. So the way that you get the word is you learned how to get it in your heart as quickly as possible before they came and confiscated it. In China, real life story. She memorized it, not out of just wanting to, she memorized it out of necessity. Because if you don't memorize it, then you won't have it. Then you won't have a Bible. She said, we got to get it in our hearts as quickly as possible. I tell you what, you know, it, we, we, we know this, that tragedy and opposition, it just reveals what, who you already are. It reveals what's already there. That's what comes out. It reveals what has been placed there, what you have worked to put there. And, 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 and days are coming. Maybe not as difficult as that, but days are coming where standing up for your faith and having a resolve in who you are. And if we get caught up in the performance of people, if we get caught up in trying to be something that people want or trying to meet a natural need that people have, we're going to lose that battle every time. But Jesus proved in this passage, I'm not going to get caught up in performance. I'm not going to get caught up in trying to be something that I'm not. Let's keep going. Verse 5, it said, for not even his brothers believed in him. Verse 6, Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived. I tell you what, just knowing who you are will help you to know when. When. You want to know the timing of things? Learn who you are. Jesus knew the timing of his mission because he knew the identity of his mission. Jesus knew when and when not to. He said the time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it that its works 
are evil. Go up to the festivals yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. Jesus lived his life with an intention. Jesus lived his life knowing his identity. And he didn't live trying to prove to people who he was. You know, I know it's important to see converts and people come into the kingdom of God. I know that that is a mission. But sometimes we can make that mission of evangelism an idol. And that we put our performance or we put how well we're doing based on how people respond to the gospel. And Jesus said this, if you go into a town and they don't respond favorably, wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next town. Don't sit and wail and cry or push and and, and try to, you know, no, you gotta, this is, you need this. I've been there. And what I found out was I took how people responded to the word that I was giving them as a, uh, uh, um, as a gauge on how well I was doing at witnessing to them. It became a a personal identity struggle of mine. You know, my gift is, is number one, a teacher and a pastor. That's, That's my gift. And so I remember, you know, early on, you know, you give an altar call, And I'll be honest, you know, people's eyes are closed. And if I just saw a flinch, if somebody went like this, you're getting called out. You were just scratching your hair. But I'll say something like, I see that hand. That's all I got to say. I see that hand. I saw that hand. By faith, I believe you were responding to the altar call. No, Pastor, I I was just getting something out of my hair. You know, but Chris Musgrove over here, he can hold an evangelistic event at a high school, and you got 300 kids blowing their hands straight up in the air, running down to the altar. And, man, you know, if you don't know who you are, that creates some complexes real quick. All of a sudden, I must not be doing as good of a job as I thought I was. What, am, I, am I even called to ministry? I went to Bible school. I learned how to do this. I learned, I, I've been preaching. I've been, I mean, is there something wrong with the way I said it? Is there something, was there something on my face? Were they not receiving? Were they not listening? You know, sometimes the people sitting in the crowd can give you a complex. Not you guys. You guys are great. You guys are attentive. You look right at me. But you see, you know, a hundred people could be on the edge of their seat leaning in, and I'm going to look at the one that's falling asleep in the back row. Am I not doing a good enough job? No, they worked the third shift, you know. They, They came straight from work to get here. Amen. It's amazing the things that we'll base our identity in. It's amazing the things that we will use to tell us who we are, or how well we're doing. I want to give you this right here. Three three wrong comparisons that we make. Three wrong comparisons that we make. Number one, we compare our behind-the-scenes with other people's highlight reels. We compare 
hour behind the scenes with other people's highlight reels. Don't, don't we do this? You know, the highlight reels that you see on ESPN, you know, the top 10, da-na-na, right? That's the goal of life is to have that highlight reel moment. And then what we do is we, we are judging how well we're doing our life when nobody's looking with somebody else's life when everyone's looking. Don't, don't ever judge how good of a parenting job you're doing by the picture or photo of video that someone chooses to put out. Because for every photo they took that looks amazing, there's 992 that they filtered through just to get to that one. Then when they found that one, they put a gloss on it or they photoshopped something out of it or they made it look beautiful or they hired a photographer to take it in the first place. This is what people do. And now all of a sudden I feel like a complete failure because my child is screaming in the background, won't listen to a word I said. And here's this family photo of them all nice and neatly. I was going through Camden's yearbook just the other day. One of his yearbooks. We were cleaning his room, and I found this yearbook, and, and I was looking through it. And in the back, all the parents or grandparents will say, you know, congratulations, Amy, graduating the fifth grade. He goes to a, uh, elementary school that graduates in the fifth grade. It only goes to the fifth grade. So they have all these congratulation photos and these family photos. And I'm thinking, man, <laughs> look at those wardrobes. They're matching. They're on the beach. Went to Destin. You know, they're all arms around each other, you know, just, uh, you know, just amazing. I'm sitting in a bedroom that's torn to pieces by my son. I bet his bedroom looks awesome. (laughs) I bet their, their daughter eats all their vegetables and fruits. You start having these thoughts, and I'm comparing... My real life scenario was something that they built up and made up and hired someone, paid someone $500 an hour to take these pictures for them, edit them, crop them down, make them look, you know, all-star. This is what we do. We compare our behind the scenes with other people's highlight reels. It's the private versus public. Number two, we compare our weaknesses with other people's strengths. We compare our weaknesses. Usually we highlight the thing that we're horrible at and we highlight the thing that other people are great at. We're comparing what we are terrible with with someone who is great at that thing. But guess what? They're terrible at something you're great at. You know what I have found out in life? That the very people that you are wishing you had their life are probably pointing the finger right back at you saying, I wish I had their life. If we just would be honest about it. The poor are looking at the rich saying, I wish I had all that money. And the rich are looking at the poor saying, I wish I didn't have all this responsibility. Come on. So we got to understand this is not a, this is not trying to 
compare or be what somebody else has because the weakness that I have, it's a weakness. But the strengths that I have are someone else's weakness. And if we would, rather than comparing with one another, recognize that we could get together and you can help me in my weakness and I can help you in your weakness and I'm creative and you're administrative, so I'll help you with the creativity side and you help me with the organization and the administration. And now we make a team and now we all get it done together. You know, I was talking about the five-fold ministry. Teacher, pastor, you got the evangelist, you got the apostolic gift, you got the prophetic gift. And, and, and we, we, the enemy has got us in a five-fold gift, all pointing fingers at one another. And not only just pointing our fingers and wanting to be each other, we criticize one another. Oh, that evangelist, all they care about is just winning souls and just, you know, making babies, but nobody's taking care of these babies. And, you know, all this, all of us pastors are like, who's going to shepherd all these people that just came in? 319, ooh, great whoop, you know, so 319 souls in one night, good for you. Where are they going to go to church? Well, we need each other. I need you to help get them in the kingdom, and you need me to help raise them up and teach them and pastor them. Because the evangelist is saying, how are we going to pastor all these people? And the pastor is saying, how are we going to get all these people? And if we get together and say we need each other's gifts, we need each other. But it's insecurities and it's identity crises that we have that keep us from pulling on someone else's gift. And your strength can now help me in my weakness. But I'm too insecure Lord, help us. Number three, comparing your beginning with someone else's ending. Comparing your beginning with someone else's ending. We do this. We're just getting started in something. Let's take working out. One of the biggest reasons why people don't keep going to a gym and working out is because they're intimidated by all the healthy people who have been working out for years. Come on. That's intimidating. I just work out in my house. I just, I don't, I don't need all this. I don't need all these people looking. They're not, they're not looking at you. They've got AirPods in for a reason. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to engage you. But you don't want to look like, you know, they got, you just got to have the rookie moments, man. You just got to push out, push into it with everything you got. Ask questions. Now, I remember the first time I was using a piece of equipment and a guy nicely came over and told me, hey, you don't want to do that. You're going to tear your back open to it. We've, we've all seen the fail videos, right? The workout fail, people using a piece of equipment the wrong way, and it's like, how did you not just die? It's supposed to help you, not hurt you. But it could be intimidating starting out right next to someone that's been doing it. Well, guess what? They had to start somewhere too. For some people, it's intimidating to begin to step into things of the Spirit of God around people that are seasoned and have been doing it for a long time. But guess what? All of us had to step out and say, I, I, I think I'm getting a tongue right now. I, I think I got this, but I'm, I, you know, I, might, I might just be the cheeseburger I had before I came to church right now. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit or really a dream that I had. 
Well, we got to step out because I got to start. You got to start. But you didn't start at the end. God did, but we don't. We've got to step out and start. Look at this in Romans chapter 8. I'll close right here. Romans chapter 8. Did y'all get something out of this tonight? This comparison trap, it's got to go. We have no business comparing ourselves to anything. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. And what? Who are called according to whose purpose? The next time someone tries to judge you on what you're doing and how you're performing, you just let them know, I don't remember being called according to your purpose. <laughs> I don't, last time I checked, I was called according to his purpose. I wasn't trying to please you anyways. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, predestined before. God is not trying to figure your life out with you. He's already been there. Conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called... He also justified or made right. And those he justified, he also glorified. Look at verse 28 right here, wrapping it up. In verse 28 in the Passion Translation, it'll be on the screen behind me. So we are convinced, everyone say convinced. Convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his designed purpose. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithbaldosta.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.